James 1, beginning in verse 16. Do not be deceived. Do not err, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As we study this book of James, we'll continue to find that it is different in a number of ways from the other books of the Bible. One of those differing ways can be seen in the way that right along with giving instructions and guidance for those who are already maturing in their faith and in their salvation, God also keeps going back and revisiting the first and most basic steps of salvation. And he does that here in this text today in the words that I just read to us. Why does God do that? I have no doubt that it is because all interspersed within every group of believers, there are some who really have not taken that final step of surrender to Christ. That very decisive step spoken about in John chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to these words. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are some in most every crowd that think that they fit these criterion, but they don't. Unfortunately, in every congregation, there are some that have even grown up all of their lives within the walls of their church. They can speak all the right words. They can really also enjoy many of the benefits and privileges of being part of the family of God, but not really be a part of it, not truly born again. And so then the message that James repeats to us over and over again in this book is one that urges each of us to examine ourselves carefully and make sure that we truly are of the faith. In the beginning words here of this chapter, God speaks to us about the testing of our faith, which assumes that we have already received Christ as our Savior and that we are now being chastened, perhaps, by the hand of God so as to strengthen us and mature us in our faith and in our beliefs. But as we read these words of today's text, we find that God is doing just as I mentioned a moment ago. He's going again, back to the very basics of salvation and speaking to the unsaved. Now, if as we study these words and we are already saved, then they will help us to grow in our faith. But if we're not saved, then this gospel has the power to reach into our souls and to bring us to salvation. Those are words that are given in Romans 1 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Think about those words for just a moment. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I never cease to be amazed at this truth, how God is able to put an inherent compelling power within certain words. Words that 
when spoken or presented in some form uh, like preaching or in songs or in performances as has taken place over this Easter weekend. While that is taking place, there is a, a very persuasive kind of attraction that emanates out from what's being presented, drawing people to Christ and to salvation. That's what he's talking about here that takes place in the gospel, with the presentation of the gospel, this death, this burial and the resurrection of Christ. I so appreciate the Easter season being recognized and being celebrated. In Kosciuszko, the Methodist Church presents this performance outside of their church each year, depicting all that took place during the crucifixion and the resurrection. Every time that the Easter message is celebrated, the gospel is being manifested. And it has a way of attracting and drawing people to Christ and to salvation. I want to read our text again. I want to begin, though, in verse 13, because all of these verses are tied together. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own evil desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And then our text for today. Do not be deceived. Do not err in your thinking, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Now note how these instructions have moved from the testing of our faith and the asking for wisdom from God, which are instructions for maturing believers, on to words that are more directed to those that are not yet saved. Now here beginning in verse 16, we're being told that we must not be deceived. We should not err in our beliefs and in our thoughts about God, believing that He might possibly lead us down some errant path. He's stating this clearly for us, that God really cannot do that. He really cannot do that. He cannot Himself be tempted to do anything that's unholy or unrighteous, and He will never tempt any of us to do the same. He is ever and always holy and righteous, and He is trustworthy at all times and in every way. Now, yes, yes, there are times when God will lead us through occasions of trials and testing. But as we learned from Hebrews 12, God is a loving Father. He's only simply taking the, the responsibility that he's supposed to take because he loves us as a father. And so he chastens us and he wants to train us up in ways of righteousness. And so his intentions in bringing us through those sufferings, those testings, is that he desires us to be trained up in the ways of righteousness. His intentions are always good, always trustworthy. And that's what he reminds us of here in verse 17. Every good gift 
and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And I do want us to be reminded to always keep this truth at the forefront of our thinking, that God is always good. Everything that He brings to us, everything that He bestows upon us is good. That at the very core essence of who God is, His nature and His spirit and His character, He is holy, He is righteous, and He is always good and should not be distrusted. Now before I go further, I want to pause and ask each of us, you, do you believe that? Do you believe that about God? When you find yourself being directed or guided into a very difficult circumstance, do you really believe that God truly is always good and that everything He does is always good? I think we should address that question because belief that God is truly good is essential to our faith. It gains us nothing within our soul to profess that we believe in God if we're not fully confident that He truly is always good. Now, why is that so? It's because if you and I don't believe that God is always good, then in all of those circumstances that bring us difficulties on a daily basis, they'll bring us doubts. We'll start to waver with questions. And those questions will begin to take their toll on our faith. Why do I know that? It's because it takes place in my own soul. And I know it takes place in yours. Too often in those times of stress, in conflict, we find our thoughts and our hopes being tossed about by waves of doubt. And we're asking God, why? Why are you doing that, Lord? And we get to thinking even at some points, where are you? Where are you, God? I know a young man that's going through the last days of his marriage. They're in that waiting period when the divorce is to come final. And he is a solid Christian young man. But he is going through some of the worst dry, arid land right now. That's what takes place. Unless you can know that God is good and that He will work everything together for our good, then we get tossed about. He wants us to change from being that kind of person. The ones that are tossed about by the waves here that's spoken about in verse 6, 7, and 8. Listen, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He doesn't want us to be this way. He doesn't want you and me to be so subject to being tossed around by every wind. He wants to transform you and me from this up and down, doubting and wavering soul. And He wants to do it as He speaks about here in verse 18. Of His own will, note those words, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. Now may I remind us that yes, while these words are appropriate 
for us as maturing Christians, these words are really taking us back to the basics of salvation. And with these words, he's compelling us again to ask our own selves, have we truly taken that final step of surrender into salvation? Here in these words, this verse 18, God's describing for us the ultimate of the good and perfect gifts that he spoke about. The ultimate of the good and perfect gifts that he will ever bestow upon us. And note carefully here in these words that he begins by making this clear declaration that all of this, all of this will come from him and from him alone. Listen again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He clearly tells us here in these first words that it is of his own will. Now, yes, somewhere in that whole transaction, there's some free will involved. And I don't know exactly how it gets all intermixed. But I do know from these words that it is not our free will that will save our mortal souls. And it's not our free will that will sanctify us. While our free will has to be involved, it is of Him, of His will. It comes from God and God alone. Let me say that another way. The change that God wants to wrought within our souls is a completely sovereign act of His own will. Yes, we may contribute to it through our own free will wanting to do His will, but the effectual part, as He's saying here, it comes from His own free will. Now, why is that necessary? Why is that necessary? And here I want us you to bear with me, if you will. I'm going to repeat some of the scriptures that I have given to us over the last few weeks. But it's absolutely necessary for us and for our salvation that this be of His own free will because otherwise you and I would never be saved. Now, I want to stop there and ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes, that's a doctrine of this church. But too often, and contrary to the doctrines of some of our fellow believers that are in the churches that are all around us, what God is saying here is clear and plain to us. Yes, we were created in the image of God. And yes, we have some of His attributes written up on our DNA. But listen, the ability to just make a decision on our own, that we want to be saved, simply is not a part of God's endowment to us. How do we know that? He says it in many places throughout these scriptures. Let me read this again. I read to you a week or so ago from Romans chapter 3. Listen to these words carefully. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Let those words sink in. There is no one righteous. No one who understands. No one who seeks God, not even one. There are regular departments within some of our more solid churches out there today that have been named seekers. It'll be a Sunday school class for seekers. It'll be a Bible study for seekers. 
There is no such thing. Let me read that again. Verse 11 of Romans 3. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God before salvation. We want it to be that way, but it just does not happen before salvation. We, yes, want to seek to know more about Christ, and we want to seek to know Him better. But to bring us to salvation does not happen. Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like you to turn there if you will. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us the reason why. Why we will not seek after God before His Holy Spirit has borne us again. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, it tells us it's because we, we can't do that on our own because we're dead. Really dead. And dead people cannot seek to do anything. Verse 1, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Folks, the Lord did not just try to use a hyperbole or some form of analogy when He says you were dead in trespasses and sin. God is using a very accurate, very specific statement there. And He cannot be any more clear. In our unsaved condition, we were dead in every way. We just did not know it. We just did not know that we were dead. Neither does any unbeliever as they go about their daily routines of life. Unsaved and without Christ, I was dead, completely dead in my transgressions and sin. I had an inkling that all those things that I was doing were wrong, but not enough to stop doing them and to turn my heart to Christ. I was dead, completely dead in my transgressions and sins. Now, those words are very specific. Transgressions is it's, it's this active reaching out to follow after sin. That's what dead people do. I followed the course of this world, just as he says here. I followed the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. I was one of those sons of disobedience, living in the sins of my flesh, a child of wrath. Were you any of these? Yes, we all were these. That's what he said. And so that's the why of this James 1.18. This first few words of his own will. I could not. I would not. I did not even want to know God or to submit myself to Him until He, until he started to draw me to Him. Then I started to, to reach out to Him. But I didn't seek Him on my own. It was all of His own hand. This is the Easter story. This is the gospel. This is how God wrought salvation within our souls. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now here in this verse again, when I read it to you earlier, 
I read it from the English Standard Version. And sometimes each of these versions will leave some of the impact of the other versions behind. In the King James, I especially like this verse in the King James. This portion where he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. This translation of brought forth in the King James is translated beget. Beget. And that's a far better description of what takes place. As it's defined there in the Greek with the word apakio, it means to beget or to literally breed forth. To breed forth. And bespeaks that whole process of being born again. That's what those words mean. Being brought forth. means to be born again. And it bespeaks what Jesus said to Nicodemus when He said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And so it must be with you and me, as He says here. So from the King James Version, in verse 18, Of His own will He begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Now note again from these words that no part of this transaction of our salvation is from our own effort. I want to keep saying that. It's, it's just as when a child is born. When a child is born, they are not participating with the act of their birth by their own free will. A child is born solely by the compelling force of the one who is begetting them. And that's what's taking place within these words. There is this compelling force within the word of truth. As we hear the word of truth, we're drawn in a compelling way to hear and to receive the truth that's being given to us. John 6.44 No man comes to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Without that drawing, that compelling, we would not turn and begin to respond to Christ. And, and this drawing is no simple wooing as we want to word it sometimes. This is a compelling force. And where does it come from? Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that's what he's saying here in this verse. God the Father puts this compelling draw within our souls, and He does it through the hearing of the Word of God, the Word of truth. It is that same compelling force that we spoke about a moment ago there in Romans where he spoke of the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. This word of God, this word of truth, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Again, over and over, we're being told that every part of our salvation process is exactly as these words are telling us, that it is of his own will, that he begat us, he born us again with the word of truth so that we could be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. I would love to spend another 15 minutes on this last part of this verse that speaks of you and me becoming first fruits, but we've run out of time. But do you know what that means? You and I, He borns us again. He births us again into being a kind of first fruit. He's saying there that you and I get to become sons of God. We are the first fruits. Jesus is described as the very first fruit 
of salvation. And then you and I are also then first fruits as we come to know Him. And it says in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Him. We are sons of God. We can call out to God, Abba, Father. We are birthed into the family of God here in those last few words, that we should be a kind of first fruits. We are birthed into the family of God and we become sons of God. I love to ponder that thought. What will it be like? What should it be like now as a son of God? How will it be in heaven when we get there and we get to reign with Him? It's beyond my imagination. But that's what He's taking us to. Of His own will, He begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures, a son of God. That's the best good and perfect gift that God could bestow upon us. Let's pray.